Thank you for joining us. Our goal at Church of the Rock is to help you know God, live free, and find purpose. To learn more about us, please check out our website at churchoftherock.ca or stay connected with our free app available for Apple and Android devices. So today I'm starting a brand new series called The Holy Trifecta. How many of you are real clear on the term trifecta? You know what a trifecta is. A few hands going up in the room. That just uh, pretty much signals your bad behavior of your past. Uh, Because it's a horse racing term. And it has to do with betting so that you actually call the first, second, and third place finishers exactly in the correct order. It's a long odds bet. It's very difficult to get. Uh, The the biggest payout in history was the 2009 Kentucky Derby. A $2 bet paid out $43,700. That's like winning the lottery. So anyway, the trifecta is a very hard one to get. Uh, On that sort of note, I have a personal story for you to do with my daughter. And so when my youngest daughter, Danica, who's in the room today, when she was about 12 years old, we didn't let her go off and do a bunch of uh, sleepovers when they were younger. But at 12, there was a family in the church, and their daughter was the same age as ours. So we decided to let her off for the weekend, and away she went. We'll never forget when she came back. I said to her, so what did you do this weekend? She says, we went to the track. And I said, what? What do you mean the track? She says, the horse track. You went to a Cinnaboyne dance? They took you to a Cinnaboyne dance? And she says, yeah. I said, well, what did you do at the track? She said, we played the ponies. I said, what, what do you mean you played the ponies? Like you were, you were betting on the horses? I said, you didn't have any money. She says, they gave us $10 each, and, and uh, we could keep whatever we won. And I just bet the horses that had the best names. And look, I won $30. She pulled $30 out of her pocket. I said, so you're telling me that this family in the church took you to the track and taught you how to gamble. She says, yeah, I love gambling. (laughs) We've been dealing with her ever since on this. That is not the holy trifecta when the pastor's daughter goes gambling. The holy trifecta is found in 1 Corinthians 13, 13. And you all know it. And it says, now abide faith, hope, and love, these three. And the greatest of these is love. And that's the holy trifecta. And the context of this is very important. Is what Paul is doing is he's telling us about the gifts of the Spirit. And so he goes into all these really elaborate gifts of miracles and healings and, and spiritual discernment and tongues and interpretation and prophecy. He goes through all of this. And then he says, after he tells us to earnestly desire these things, he then says, oh, by the way, these things will pass away. And then he says, but these three things abide or remain or these are forever and their faith, hope, and love. And so what he's saying is that the spiritual trifecta, the first, second, and third place in spirituality is faith, hope, and love. Those are the things that we build our life on. And so here's what we're going to do. So we're going to start with the one which is not the first one. It's, I'm going to make it the last one, and it's hope. And hope, I, say, I think, is the foundation of it. And so my message today is entitled, 
what is it entitled? Hope Floats. There you go. <laughs> I knew I'd think of it. Hope Floats. And some of you think of that as the title of a movie with Sandra Bullock, and you'd be right about that. But it's actually an expression, and Hope Floats actually means this. It means to have the strength to overcome adversity and trial in life. And if we look into Scripture, here's what the Scripture says about hope. And it's in uh, Hebrews chapter 6, verse 18, and it says this. Be strongly encouraged to seize the hope set before us. We have this hope, a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. So what he says is that faith is one thing, but hope is the anchor for your soul. All these things, faith and love, I think start with hope. Hope is the thing that's the anchor of our soul. That's the thing that nails us down, and that's the place in which we start. See, if I was to ask you this question, how long can you live without food? The answer would be 40 days. How long can you eat, live without water? And that would be eight days. How long can you live without oxygen? It would be four minutes. How long can we live without hope? And here's the challenge. You can't live very long without hope. Well, you can, but it's not really life and life abundantly. And here's what the scripture says on the other side of this equation. It's Proverbs 13, 12. And it says, hope deferred makes the heart sick. But when the dream comes, it's a tree of life. Or in other words, when we lose our hope, it makes our heart sick. So here's the way I look at it. You show me someone who's depressed, discouraged, despondent, distressed, disinterested, dis anything, and I'll show you someone who's lost their hope. And you look at any portion of your life, you can look at things that we've, we've lost hope in, and you know what it's like. You know what it's like to be in this place where you had a dead-end job, and it just doesn't feel like it's going anywhere, and you want, think, is this job ever going to get any, any better? When you're in a marriage, and you don't know if your marriage is going to improve, when you have your finances, and it just looks like you're never going to make ends meet, or let's say you have kids living at home that are grown, when are they ever going to move out? You know what it's like to lose hope in those things? Like, like the grave digger who quit his job, he finally realized he was in a dead-end job. That's a good one, isn't it? <laughs> Is that a groaner? You didn't even groan. How about this? How about this? Do you remember the good old days when we had Charlie Pride, Johnny Cash, and Bob Hope? Now we have no pride, no cash, no hope. <laughs> so here's what I'm going to talk about today is I want to sort of build a case for this thing called hope and hope deferred makes the heart sick but he tells us that hope is actually the anchor of the soul hope is the thing that gives us the power to be able to endure the challenges and the adversities of life and I think I'm going to paint a picture for you I think you could all recognize how many of you have ever been in the hospital emergency waiting room how many of you have been in that place Probably most of you in the room, you've all been there. Somebody went in, you took somebody in, you ended up in the waiting room. And you look around that room, and I'll tell you, there's a pall that hangs over it. Those people are all on pins and needles, aren't they? They're on tender hooks because they don't know what's going to happen. They don't know the news they're going to get. And you know what they're waiting for? They're waiting for the doctor to walk out and say this, he's going to be okay. And you've all seen it. And, and there's this relief. And people go, oh, and they sigh, and they hug each other. And you've all seen that. You've probably seen the other side when they've got the bad news and their heart sinks and hope deferred when you lose that sense of hope when someone or some situation doesn't offer you hope your heart feels sick and your heart just drops we've all been there and my family we're no strangers to adversity we've had our fair share maybe more than our fair share of tragedy and uh, I spent more time in the emergency waiting room than I care to tell you about and I just want to tell you one little story about this and, and it's, it's kind of a happy story with a sad beginning 
And uh, we went through it really with my brother, my older brother. Uh, first, he spent a year on chemotherapy fighting cancer. And then he no sooner recovered that he had an accident and broke his neck and was paralyzed from his neck down. Some of you remember this story. You've been around long enough. And then the cancer came back, and within another half year, my brother was gone. He was dead. And uh, he was just in and, the ho- and out of the hospital, and we just lived on this emotional roller coaster this whole time. And I, I'll never forget when he was in rehab hospital. He spent three months in rehab. And uh, it was a difficult time for us. I mean, he had a broken neck. He was paralyzed from the neck down during that time. And I went in, you know, several times a week to encourage him and offer him hope and be his brother and love on him like, like you would too if you, you, know, you were in that situation. And what happened, because it's a rehab hospital, there's all these people that had amputated limbs and broken bones and they're all getting fixed up. And his roommates kept on changing. Every week or two weeks or three weeks, there would be a new roommate I remember one day I went down to visit him, and I walked into his room, and I walked past, past his roommate's bed, and I said hi to my brother, and, and he said to me, have you met my new roommate, Osman? So I turned over, and I said, hey, Osman, how are you doing? And, and Osman was a young uh, Eritrean man from Africa, and uh, he's about 18 years old, and he had a cast from his hip all the way down to his foot. And I'm kind of nosy, so I said, so what happened to you? And he tells me this terrible story. He says, I was standing on the street waiting for a bus, and a car went up the curb and hit me right in the leg. And uh, he said, smashed my, my knee up, and I'm lying here, and they, they've, they've done surgery on it. So I said to him, so what did they do to it? And he says, well, I'm not really sure. I said, and I don't know why I say stuff like this, but I do. I said, well, you know, I'm a knee expert. I said, so which ligament got busted? Was it the ACL, the PCL, the LCL, or the MCL? I'm pointing at his knee. He says, I, I don't know. And, uh, and he says, how would I find out what they did to my knee? And I said, well, you'd have to check the chart. You know, it's on your chart. Whatever they've done, it's on the chart. You'd be able to find that out. So then, you know, I finished chatting with him, went back, visited with my brother for about half an hour. So when I'm leaving, and I said, well, Osman, we'll see you later. It was nice meeting you. He said, wait, aren't you going to check my chart? <laughs> and I said, what? He said, you said you were going to check my chart. Would you check my chart for me? And I thought, sure, I guess I could check your chart for you. I thought, how hard could it be? Now, here's the secret, having spent enough time in hospitals, the way you make your way around the hospital is just pretend like you're supposed to be there and you own the place. And uh, if they think you're in charge or you have authority, they'll tell you anything you want. And so, you know, they don't know what the doctors look like anymore. It's not like they're walking around in lab coats. They're the guy with the man bun and the earring these days. You know, they never know who the doctor is. And so, so anyway, I just walked up to the nurse's desk and I said, uh, I wonder if I could see the chart of Osman in 24B. Now, without even looking up, she passes me the chart, Osman's chart. Now I have the chart. So I'm looking at this chart. Well, I don't know if you don't know this or not. I'm actually not a real doctor. I just play one on television. I hadn't the foggiest idea what was on this thing. There was all these acronyms and letters, and I turned it upside down, didn't make any more sense upside down. I thought, I don't really know how to read a chart. <laughs> who, who knew, right? And then I saw this word. This one word jumped out of the page, and it said patella. And I said it out loud. I said, oh, patella. I know what that is. So do you. It's a kneecap. I went, oh, patella. And the nurse, again, without looking up, said, yep. Yeah. 
They had to put three screws in that patella. I thought, oh, now I know what they did. Busted patella, they put three screws in it. Now I have something to report back to Osman. So I said, thank you very much. I gave her the chart back, walked down the hall like I'm some sort of doctor, went in and I said, so Osman, I have some news for you. Turns out when the car hit you, it shattered your patella, but they put three screws in and everything should be okay. And so then he looked up at me, his eyes all watered up. They were just wet. And he looked at me with these puppy dog eyes and he says, but will I ever play soccer again? So I turned to him and I said, well, in my opinion, (laughs) I don't see any reason why you won't play soccer again. And at that, my brother went nuts and said, for goodness sakes, what are you doing? I said, what do you mean, what am I doing? He says, you're pretending to be a doctor. I said, like there's a law against that. He says, there is a law against that. It's called impersonating a doctor. Why are you telling him he's going to play soccer again? You don't know if he's going to play soccer again. I said, the guy just needs a little bit of hope. So I'm giving him some hope here. I just come here. What do you think I'm here for? I'm here to spread a little sunshine and good news to people. I'm not going to tell him he's not going to play soccer. (laughs) I don't know why you're clapping. And uh, and so, so anyway, Osmond's smiling. He's happy. He needed me to tell him that. Sure, I made it up. But what difference does it make, right? (laughs) He needed a little hope, and he got a little hope in that moment. My brother was mad as anything at me. I left, and I never saw him again. The next time I went back, he wasn't there. He had been released. My brother didn't know what happened to him. And and I thought, I'm never going to see this kid again. I'm never going to know what happened. But this is what happened. One day, I'm walking down Sherbrooke. And who should I run into is him walking towards me. Now, I didn't recognize him. He recognized me. And when he saw me, he went, doctor! Huh? Huh? He thought I was the doctor. He says, doctor, I just wanted to tell you my knee all healed up and I'm back playing soccer again. And I thought, maybe I am a doctor. Who knows? Now, of course, I didn't have anything to do with him getting better. That was just a lucky guess. Uh, But here's my point in all this. The point is that we all need hope. And today what we're going to do is we're going to do a little journey into the scripture and I'm going to tell you how we get there. So here's where we are. We're in Luke chapter 5. And of course, this is about Jesus. And here's how it goes. Verse 3. Then he got into one of the boats which was Simon's, and asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the multitudes from the boat. And when he had stopped speaking, he said to Simon, launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. But Simon answered and said to him, Master, we have toiled all night and caught nothing. Nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the net. And when they had done this, they caught a great number of fish, and their nets were breaking, so they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled the boats so that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish which they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will catch men. And so when they had brought their boats to the land, they forsook all and followed Jesus. Now, 
Here's my question for you, a bit speculative. Do you think Peter, in this moment of the story, had lost hope in fishing? Think about that. He had toiled all night. They'd been out there all night. Can you imagine this? When Jesus found them, they were on the shores cleaning their nets. There was nothing in their nets. There was just seaweed. They were just cleaning. They had to do all the work, but they had no benefit. They had no fruit of their labors. They were discouraged, no doubt. They had lost hope. So Jesus says to them, Cat, launch out in the deep, put your nets out. Why? Why would I do that? Why would we do this thing? We have done this all night long and nothing's happened. So they had lost hope. And probably every single person in this room has had a time in your life where you know the story for yourself. Where you have worked really hard at something. You've invested time and money and energy and come up with nothing. How many of you have had that moment in life? We've all had that moment. At some point or another, we've all been through that journey. And yet, it all changes in this moment. And here's the answer to this question. I have, I have three points. See, here's my question. Hope abides when we, here's the three things. Number one, decide to follow Jesus. Number two, dare to obey his instruction. Number three, we don't return to business as usual. So the first thing, it's, it's super simple, but we decide to follow Jesus. And this story ends with these fishermen, all of them, including James and John, all of them deciding that they're going to follow Jesus. And it's so interesting because when they meet Jesus, when they encounter Jesus, their prospects of life completely change. In fact, they turned on a dime. They changed in an instant. They went from catching nothing to the biggest catch of fish they have ever had. Why? What changed? See, as long as Peter was his own master and his own Lord and was doing his own thing, he was getting Peter's results. But when he started doing things Jesus' way, when he was following Jesus... When he made that decision, he starts getting Jesus' results. And see, see, Peter knew this, didn't he? Because he fell down on his knees and he said, Lord, depart from me, for I'm a sinful man. Why did he say that? He knew that he didn't deserve this catch. He knew that as long as he was just doing his own thing, he wasn't getting success. And he's looking at what happened, this encounter with the, the, the one true God, and he falls down and he recognizes he's the problem. And see, here's what happens. When we decide to follow Jesus... He saves us from ourselves. See, we're kind of the problem. And see, here's what happens in our world. When I look at our world, I don't think our world without Jesus offers up the right things, the right goals. What it offers us is is not the right purpose, not the right meaning. It offers us uh, things that really don't have true hope in them. And what Jesus does is he comes and he reverses that, and he gives us things that really, truly matter. Let me, let me show you a verse on this. And the verse on it is this. It says, Jeremiah 29, verse 11. It says, For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. And I, I look at what the world offers up compared to the future and the hope that Jesus offers up, and it's just not the same thing. So let me tell you a little story about that to illustrate this. So a number of years ago, we were taking our kids to Orlando to Disney World for the first time, and my uncle owned a home there, and he said, hey, if you want to save some money and stay in our home, you can. It's empty at the time. And so he gave us the key, and we drove down to Florida. We didn't know what this house was going to look like. And we got into the house. It was all set up for how they had lived in it. They hadn't touched a thing. And Kathy and I stayed in his 18-year-old daughter's bedroom. And so everything from her bedroom was just the way she had left it. You can learn a lot about a person by staying in their bedroom. 
And so one of the things she had was a big poster or a big handwritten piece of paper, and she had her life goals, and she had written her 10 life goals on this sheet of paper. Wow, that's impressive. An 18-year-old girl had all her goals laid out because, you know, you can't beat the man with a plan, right? If you aim at nothing, you'll hit it every time. And here this young girl had the foresight to lay out the plan for her life. Would you like to hear it? Because I remember it. So here were her 10 life goals. I don't remember them all, but I'll give you the first three. Number one, to become famous. Number two, to be very rich. Number three, marry Justin Bieber. (laughs) Now, Now let me ask you a question. Are those real goals? Those goals, those aren't goals. Those are, those are daydreams. Those aren't goals. She said nothing about a career, nothing what she was going to actually do. She didn't say how she was going to become famous. She didn't say how she was going to become rich. She didn't know where she was going to meet Justin Bieber and marry him. I think he's married, isn't he? And, you know, it was so ridiculous. I'm looking. I said, Kathy, that's the dumbest thing I've ever seen. What kind of goals, what kind of life goals are these? But I'm telling you, people, that's what young people today are getting bombarded with. They're being told that this is what they need to pursue in life. And so they write them down as goals, for goodness sakes. And social media feeds them this stuff. There was a a British newspaper. They did a survey of only 16-year-olds. And they asked them this question. They said, what would be your ideal career? If you could pick any career you would ever want, what would be your ideal career? 54% of them said to be a celebrity. (laughs) Do you know that a celebrity is not actually a career, right? Like, I know, because I am one. (laughs) Like, I'm really famous. Did you know that? And (laughs) I'm kidding. But that's not a career. You actually have to do something to be famous for it. You're all following this, right? You're You're all getting this? I mean, unless you're a Kardashian, nobody's going to pay you to be shallow and talentless and self-absorbed and morally vapid. That was a bit judgy, wasn't it? But it's true. Nobody's going to pay you to do nothing. You actually have to do something with your life. And so this is what the world offers. And what happens is when Jesus comes into your life, it says that what he offers you is a hope and a future. Everything changes. Everything changes, or it should change, when you decide to follow Jesus. Now, here's one of my favorite Billy Graham stories. There's lots of great Billy Graham stories, but this is probably my favorite. Some, maybe some of you have heard it before. It's the story of this man and woman, and their marriage fell apart like many people do today, and they ended up not only getting separated, but divorced. Their marriage was ended, and they were both living separately, and life was pretty miserable for both of them. She was living on one side of the city alone, and he was living on the other side of the city alone. And one day, Billy Graham was coming to town. He was doing a crusade, one of his famous crusades, in the stadium in the city. And the gal, the wife, one of her friends, phoned her up and said, Billy Graham's in town. I want to go. Why don't you come with me? So she agreed that she would go. At the same time, her ex-husband was sitting in his apartment, reading the newspaper, saw an advertisement for the Billy Graham crusade, and he decided, out of curiosity's sake, he was going to go and attend the crusade. So the two of them showed up separately. One was sitting in the east wing, one was sitting in the west wing, as far away as you could possibly be from one another. And Billy Graham preached one of his famous messages on hope. If anybody was good at the message of hope, it was Billy Graham. 
I mean, he understood this, that the world just didn't have a proper message of hope, that people without Christ are lost in this world and without hope, and that hope was the answer that came when you found Christ. And he did this fantastic job, better than I'll ever do a preaching on hope. And that's what he did that particular day. And then, of course, he did his requisite uh, altar call at the end where he invited people to come from the stands and to give their hearts to Christ. And the gal in the east stand and the guy in the west stand both got up separately and they started their way down and they were standing in this crowd of hundreds of people as Beverly Shea sang, Just As I Am. And then Billy Graham led them in the sinner's prayer and they confessed Jesus as their Lord and Savior and invited him into their life and decided to follow Jesus. They said that prayer with their eyes closed and when they said amen and opened their eyes, this former husband and wife were standing right beside each other. In the providence of God, in that moment, he had brought them together. And when they decided to follow Jesus, they turned to one another, broke out in, in, in cries and tears and gave one another a hug. And they went out for coffee. And then they started to date one another. And then they remarried. Everything changed when they decided to follow Jesus. And so that's how we, you know, somebody just wants to give the Lord a hand. You go give the Lord a hand. It's a great story. And when we, when we decide to follow Jesus, that's the first thing. But there's a second thing about restoring and getting hope to abide in our life. And that's to dare to obey his instructions. And so in this story, they had lost hope. They'd fished all night. They'd caught nothing. Jesus says, launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. How many think that they probably didn't want to do that? Probably didn't want to do that. But he says, nevertheless, at your word, we will go. And they went, they got the biggest catch of fish they had ever got. I think that's clear from the story. Now, they call, in the scripture, calls Peter a fisherman. But I've read the book, the gospel, and I have never on one occasion seen him catch fish when Jesus wasn't there. Have <laughs> you noticed that? And you know, I, I've told you this before. You know what he called a fisherman that doesn't catch fish? A boater. <laughs> you don't call yourself a fisherman if you're not catching fish. If you're just out there, you know, pretending you're catching fish, you're a boater. And so these guys, in my opinion, were boaters because there was only three times that Peter caught fish, and every time he did it on the instructions of Jesus. So we looked at the first one here in, in Luke chapter 5 when he tells him to let down his nets for a catch, big catch of fish. The second one, most people are less familiar with it, was in Matthew chapter 17 where Peter and Jesus went to the temple. And they said, doesn't your master pay tax? And they looked at each other and neither of them had any money. So they've got to come up with a, some money to pay the temple tax. So Jesus says to Peter, gives them instructions. He says, go down to the water, cast the line into the net. And the first fish you come out, look in its mouth and there'll be money in its mouth. So he goes down, catches a fish, looks in the mouth. There's a denarius in the fish's mouth. You know, I've caught a lot of fish. I'm a fisherman, not just a boater. I'm a fisherman, and I found a lot of stuff in fish. I found frogs. I found mice. I found other fishermen's lures in there. But I am yet to find money in a fish's mouth. I mean, that's how good it is when Jesus sends you out fishing. You don't just catch fish. You catch money, right? Sounds pretty good. My dad always said money doesn't grow in trees. Maybe not, but it comes in fish, right? <laughs> So that's the second story. And the third story is actually John 21. After Jesus is, is died, risen again, the boys go out fishing again. <laughs> he appears on the shore and says, children, have you caught any fish? And you remember what they said? We have fished all night and caught 
nothing. There's that same level of success they have without Jesus. So this is my favorite part of the story. So Jesus says, well, cast the net on the other side of the boat. Oh, yeah, that will help. Like if there's not fish on a six-foot-wide boat, I've seen them when we've been to Israel, six-foot-wide boat, if there's no fish on this side of the boat, there's not going to be any fish on this side of the boat six feet away. You don't do know that fish swim, right? And they have the ability to swim from one side of the boat to the other side of the boat. <laughs> so these guys are thinking, what? But they know what happens. Because when Jesus shows up and he tells you to do something, if you do it, everything changes. So they throw the net on the other side of the boat and bring in the second biggest catch of their career. What did they do? They dared to to keep the instructions of Jesus. And see, this is what happens. Now, I know what you're thinking about this story. You're thinking, that's easy for Peter. He's one of Jesus' disciples, and he knew Jesus in the flesh, and he walked with him. And if I had Jesus living and hanging with me, and if he asked me to do something, I would do it. But how do I know what Jesus wants me to do? Well, I'm glad you asked that question. Maybe you didn't. Maybe I did. But the answer to it is, you read the book. The answer is in the book. Do you know what the scripture says? That it contains everything that pertains to life and godliness. Not every answer in all of life and history and science is in the Bible, but everything that pertains to life and godliness is in the book. There is not anything within your life that is life and godliness that you can't find the answer to in scripture. You say, well, what are you talking about? Well, you just have to look in the right places. Like, for example, if I was discouraged, if I was depressed, if I was despondent, you know where I'd read? I'd read in the, I'd read in the Psalms. There was a guy who was acquainted with some grief, that David, right? He always started his, his psalms moaning, and by the end of the psalm, he's rejoicing. There's something powerful about the psalms that can pull you out of your emotional struggles because there's hope in those words. If I was struggling with my finances or my business, you know where I'd go? The book of Proverbs, the wisdom of Solomon on how to run your business, how do you run your life, and how to run your finances. I'm telling you, 31 Proverbs chapters, you could read one a day for a month and it would transform your life. I promise you. If I was struggling with my marriage, where would I go? I'd probably go into 1 Corinthians, maybe Ephesians, uh, because that's where Paul talks about marriage and he gives us these principles and these ideas and concepts of what would I do with my marriage. If I was struggling with doing the right thing and knowing how to direct my life and some of the moral choices in life, I'd go read the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount are these counterintuitive concepts of how do you live your life in this world that is so broken. The answers are all there. It's like, like Mark Twain. He tells a story about how a friend of his came and said, so I'm going to the Holy Land, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to climb to the top of Mount Sinai, and I'm going to read the Ten Commandments out loud. To which Mark Twain said, why don't you stay right here and keep them instead? <laughs> you all get that, right? And so the key, the secret to this is for us simply to do this, is for us to just do what we're told. B- dare to obey his instructions. Let me give you another little secret about this. All these instructions Jesus gave to his disciples, were they complicated? Launch out in the deep, let down your net for a catch, throw the net on the other side. Everything that he asked them to do was actually doable things. It was just a matter of hearing his wisdom for your situation. And here's what we need to understand about life. Life is not that complicated. It's really just doing what God wants us to do and obeying his instructions when he asks us to do them. 
And when we'll just do what we're supposed to do, whatever that is in life, whatever you're called to do, whatever your mission in life is, if you'll just do what you're supposed to do, you will get the results that you need to get. So let me tell you a story. It's not a spiritual story, but it'll illustrate this point. During the Second World War, you've got this, these coal miners in England, and they were having a really hard time because they were going down into the coal mines. They were there all day. And while they were there, there was, the Germans were dropping bombs on London. And they didn't know whether when they emerged from the mine at the end of the day, whether their families were going to be alive, whether their house was going to be bombed. And they didn't want to go back down into the mines. And they, as it were, they, they quit or they went on strike or whatever you want to call it. And you could understand it. I mean, what hope would there be to be down in the mine when your families are at risk? And, and yet they needed the coal. So Winston Churchill, who was the prime minister, he went and spoke to the coal miners. And this is what he said. He said, when the war is over... I will walk down the street and I will say to the factory worker, where were you when the war was on? And he will say, I was in the factory doing my job for family and country. And I will see the farmer and I'll say, where were you when the war was on? And he will say, I was in the field tilling the ground and growing food for family and country. And I will say to the soldier, where were you when the war was on? And he will say, I was in the trenches with my gun in hand, fighting a war for family and country. And then I will say to the coal miner, where were you when the war was on? And he will say, I was down in the heart of the earth with my face pressed against the coal, mining coal for family and country. And after that speech, the men all realized they had to do their part as small as it might have seemed. And they all went back into the mines and mined coal for the rest of the war. And see, the key for us is just to do what we're told to do. And it's usually not that complicated. Usually it's right in front of us. And if we ask him, he'll give us the instructions. And see, let's be honest about this. You know, very few of us are going to go out and win Nobel Prizes. I mean, I'm looking around the room. I know who I'm talking to here. Very few of us are going to be famous and rich and all of these things. That's not the point. All you have to do is do what you're supposed to do. And sometimes that's a simple thing. It means being a good mother or a faithful husband. It means being a hardworking employee or an honest employer or many sort of simple, basic things. That's all we're supposed to do in our life. And if we will do what Jesus has told us to do, because every little thing we do matters and affects the people around us, then we have hope. And the world offers us so many empty things, whereas Jesus says, I know my thoughts for you, for a future and a hope. So the first thing is to decide to follow Jesus. The second thing is dare to obey his instructions. And the last and the final thing is this. Don't return to business as usual. Anybody know what the definition of insanity is? It's to do the same things that you've done before over and over again and expect different results. And do you know what the disciples did after Jesus had died? Is, and, and he had risen too. But after he was gone, Peter turned to the other disciples and he said, I'm going fishing. And, and he didn't say, I'm knocking off for the day, I'm going fishing. He said, I'm going back to fishing. And the other disciples said, we're going with you. And so in John 21, where Jesus found them fishing all night and catching nothing, they had gone back to what they were doing before they returned to business as usual. And Jesus is such a nice guy. He doesn't ream them out and ball them out. He, he's standing on the shore. He's probably shaking his head. And he says, children, have you caught any fish? He knows they haven't caught any fish. They're terrible fishermen. And uh, they say no. And he says, then he says, throw the net on the other side. 
But the point was, he didn't tell them to go back fishing. He said, follow me and I will make you what? Fishers of men. He had given them a new direction and a new purpose in life. And what they did was they returned to business as usual. And as a result of it, they got the results they got before. And what happens is when Jesus calls us, he's going to give us these marching orders. He's going to give us instructions for life. And he's going to lead us into a hope and a future that might not be glamorous and it might not be, you know, uh, sensational, but it'll be the exact purpose and meaning for your life. And it's going to make all the difference in the world. And you're going to have this great hope because hope deferred makes the heart sick. But when a dream comes, it's a tree of life and hope floats. Let's stand together, shall we? So let's take a moment. We're going to do a couple of things here. The first thing I want to ask you to do is to bow your heads and and close your eyes. And I'm going to ask you two questions. The first question is for those of you in this room, and there may be a few of you, that have never decided to follow Jesus. First step. And if you've never had that definitive moment where you've invited Christ into your life to be your Lord and Savior, I want to give you that opportunity today. I'm not going to call you forward, not going to single you out, not going to ask you to say anything publicly. And I'm simply asking this, have you had that moment where you've said yes to Jesus? And if you haven't accepted the work of the cross, therefore you haven't decided to follow Jesus. And so without anybody looking around, if that's you and you'd like to make that decision today, I want you to just slip up your hand so I can see it. We'll just take a moment, if there's anybody in the room... And and, uh, let me see your hand. And once I've seen it, you can put it down again. All right. Second question is this. And again, nobody's looking around. Every every eye is close. How many of us, I was going through the things I went through today, talking about those things, talking about the different aspects of life. How many of you, if you're really honest with yourself, and again, nobody's looking around, there are areas of your life where you've lost hope. And I want you to just slip up your hand because I want to pray for you. And there's hands popping up all over the room as I would have expected. And I want you to just hold them up for a moment. I'm going to pray for you. Nobody's looking at you, just so you know. But just hold them up so you can receive what God has for you today. Father, I just pray for all of those that have just raised their hand right now. And there's some area of their life, maybe a big one, maybe a small one, but an area they've lost hope and they need you to restore that. And they're asking you this, Lord. To bring back to them, them that vision for their life, that, that, that hope and that future that you've promised in your word. That hope would be that anchor to their soul. And you would restore that which has been lost in that area of their life. And I feel like the Lord would have a couple of words for people here. And the first one is this. I think there's some people in this room that are either unemployed or underemployed. And you've become discouraged with that. You think, I can't get past this, and I can't get to the next level, and I can't find that job or find that better job. And I feel like the Lord wants to restore hope, and I think, feel like he wants to say this to you, for those of you that are, are raised the hand, that there's something new for you, and that you may need to start looking in somewhere where you wouldn't normally have looked. And you're on this particular ta- path and this particular track, and you think the answer's on that track, but it doesn't seem to be forthcoming. And there's something different or or slightly different or new for you. And uh, so just be ready for that when it comes to recognize what it is. Second thing is I I believe there's some people here with some significantly broken relationships. And you've lost hope. You think there's no way that this relationship can be restored. It's done. It's finished. And I believe the Lord would say to you that it's up to you to extend an olive branch to that person. 
And uh, in particular, the people that this is for, you've been waiting for them to come to you. You want them to either come to you or apologize for something, something like that. And the Lord says, no, I'm asking you to extend the olive branch. And that doesn't mean to be confrontational with them. The olive branch means some sort of peace offering, either something you do or something you say that will be healing and will be restorative. And he's going to give you the wisdom to know what that thing is. Dare to obey his instructions. And Father, I pray for those people right now, and I pray that you would give them that wisdom, that you would give them that word in season to know what to do, to bring refreshing to that relationship and restore that relationship. Father, for every one of us, let, let us take these things that we have learned today and apply them to our lives and allow this hope to become the anchor to our soul. And everybody who agreed said, Amen. Amen. Let's give the Lord a shout, shall we? Thanks for joining us. We want to help you know God, live free, and find purpose. To find resources to grow in your relationship with Christ, go to churchoftherock.ca slash next. You can also join us at one of our campuses, including our interactive online campus at churchoftherock.live. For locations, service times, or to support the ministry of Church of the Rock, please go to churchoftherock.ca or download the Church of the Rock app.